welcome to the Dignity and Respect in Action podcast. This series is brought to you by the UMass Office of Equity and Inclusion and features members of the university community and other experts in the fields of diversity, equity, and inclusion. In these episodes, we'll learn about the work and experiences of our guests and gain insight from their expertise. Your host for this podcast is Dr. Nefertiti Walker, Vice Chancellor of Equity and Inclusion and Professor of Sport Management in the Eisenberg School of Management. And now, here's Neff. Welcome to Dignity and Respect in Action, the podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Neff Walker. We have a very exciting podcast for you today, Professor of History and Africana Studies in the W.E.B. Du Bois Department of Afro-American Studies, Dr. Almakar Shabazz is, is joining us to talk about teaching African-American history in higher education and why it is critically important for educators to continue to have discussions about race and racism in their classrooms. Professor, welcome to the pod. Akwaba. I know, I know I've been trying to I've been trying to get you here for a while and it's been a hit and miss between your busy schedule, um, my hecticness, but I'm happy to finally have you here. Um, yes, yes. It's, it's good to see you. So we like to start off the pod by just having you um, give us an introduction um, so listeners can get to know a little bit about, more about you as an individual and how you're situated here at UMass. So can you tell us a bit about yourself and the journey that brought you to the UMass community? Sure. I was born in a place called Beaumont, Texas. It's near the border between uh, Southeast Texas and Southwestern Louisiana. Uh, all my family, father and mother's side, all came out of Louisiana and go back many, many generations. Um, the, uh, uh, but for me, growing up there in, uh, in Beaumont in the 1960s was, um, was, was quite interesting. Uh, during the, my nickname uh, that I acquired both in my neighborhood and at school was uh, Professor Peabody, Dr. Peabody or what have you. And, uh, and it's like, it, it, as I reflect on it, it's like, wow, they knew where I was going before I knew. They knew. Um, because my, I, I was into um, science. I was into, but I was thought I would more follow my, my uh, mother's brother, my uncle's footsteps and go into, um, into natural sciences. He was a microbiologist. Mm. And uh, that, that was kind of my direction for, for a time. But as I got into high school, um, I, I shifted a little more into thinking about uh, politics uh, I really expected to uh, beat Barack Obama to the White House. I'm a year older than him. And uh, my calculation was I was in a big electoral college state uh, mm -hmm. in, in, in Texas, bigger than his in, in Illinois. And, uh, and that if I could get a, a good um, uh, undergrad degree, my major was economics. That way I could understand the economy, which is a big part of being president. And then um, I would go on to law school after that and, uh, and then dive into politics and see if it could take me to the, to the White House. So when he was running, when he got elected, I was like, boy, he, you, you, you got me there. But, uh, <laughs> but anyway, I changed my direction um, while I was an undergrad. 
I got more and more into economics, into economic mm -hmm. history, into uh, uh, just that cold life of the mind kind of idea. The, the, the Professor Peabody in me, start, that inner Professor Peabody started coming out. And, uh, and so I, I dropped the idea of law school. And so for me, it was then either going on to grad school in economics or grad school in history. Um, ultimately, I went on to grad school in, in history, but always um, looking at things through the lens of political economy. And, um, and so from there, I uh, have, uh, uh, when I finished my, my PhD, I um, uh, began teaching. Originally, my first, I earned, I've earned tenure um, at three different institutions. My first time earning tenure was in an American Studies Department at the University of Alabama. Uh, I then moved to Oklahoma, Oklahoma State University, and I was tenured there in the history department. And then when I came here, because all along the way, I was always, boy, if I could just really be fully into Black studies, African-American studies. And so be careful what you wish for. <laughs> when the opportunity came to go to UMass, that for the first time put me in a, in a full-blown African-American studies uh, department and, and, and earning tenure in Afro-American studies. So I've, um, uh, when I was in American studies, my specialization area was, was uh, African-American, African diaspora. When I was in the history department, my specialization was African-American. So I wanted to move from specialization to the actual discipline mm. in coming here to UMass. So when I came here in 2007, it was an opportunity uh, that I couldn't pass up. I came in with an administrative appointment and as chair of the department, um, which I did for uh, about five and a half uh, years or so, um, switching out when uh, Kumbla Sobaswamy, after his first semester, as he came in, he gave me an opportunity to join him in the central administration, um, advising him as he got his grounding on the campus, figuring out things like the, uh, the equity and inclusion effort, what, what kind of way to set things up. So I was with him for about three, a little over three years and then return to my department where I've where I've been. So um, so that's a little bit kind of a snapshot of my journey. Thank you for that. And it's, it's um, interesting to see that you had the foresight at 16 to start planning for your presidency. That's amazing. <laughs> um, that that is absolutely amazing. Um, thanks for sharing that. So I want to dive right in and talk about um, to begin your efforts around Juneteenth. I know many folks in our UMass community very proudly saw you in the news. And of course we covered it here at UMass and everyone was proud and excited and you know, make now having it be an official um, off day, you know, a paid off day for Massachusetts um, is significant to have it as a state holiday. And we know that you were a big part of that effort. Um, so can you talk a little bit about Juneteenth in general. Some of our listeners, hopefully most people know and have a, a, at least a basic understanding of Juneteenth, but you know, there are folks out there who may not. So can you talk a little bit about the history of Juneteenth celebrations and why it's important to be recognized as a, and a holiday officially? Absolutely. So uh, I associate uh, Juneteenth uh, really with having a good time. Uh, growing up, my godfather, my parent, as we would say, um, was a uh, very uh, gregarious, outgoing leader. He uh, he would call the rodeos. He was the announcer at the rodeos uh, where I grew up. And so when summertime would come along, springtime, and you'd get out there on the weekends and go to the rodeo, 
my uncle Murray would, would oftentimes at the Bassett Arena as one of them in Cheek, Texas, uh, would, would call the rodeos. And, and so, um, you know, and, and that's where I associate some of the Juneteenth uh, weekends might be a great celebration and you'd go to rodeo, you'd eat barbecue and have a good time. And then, uh, but really where it starts to become more historically salient for me is when I uh, uh, left Beaumont, attended my undergrad institution, which was University of Texas at Austin. Now Austin's the state capital. And mm -hmm. so I'm getting there at 17 years old. Uh, it's the bicentennial, uh, 17, seven, uh, 1976, 77. There was a whole emphasis on history. And as I said, I'm starting to get that little inner Professor Peabody coming out, going into the Wayback Machine, trying to understand what's what's happened in the past, the improbable uh, events of history. And so with uh, with the whole uh, emphasis on the bicentennial and and uh, connecting with U.S. history, um, when I as I get to Austin, Juneteenth uh, is starting to be a very prominent holiday. You know, in much of the country, we after the civil rights movement sort of fades out and uh, we have the, the black power period, Texas, one of the forms that black power took in Texas was Juneteenth, was bringing it forward as this important holiday within the community to connect, to, to study our history, to, to celebrate our history. And so I, I get to Austin and there are big parades and, and the, uh, uh, the legislator, uh, Al Edwards, who pushed for it to become a state holiday, which it did in 1980, mm -hmm. but it was building up 77, 78, 79, every Juneteenth, the talk is on, this ought to be a holiday, this ought to be a holiday in the state of Texas. And so in 1980, he negotiated and uh, through, through the legislature and it became a state holiday. It was a weird sort of compromise situation, though. In order for him to get it through the uh, predominantly white Texas legislature, he, um, the compromise he made is, is that in the array of state holidays that a, a state employee could take off, the Confederate Heroes Day was also guaranteed as a state Oh, wow. Yeah. Wow. That's the compromise, huh? <laughs> that was the compromise in yeah. 1980. You want some of your history? Cool. We got to have ours too. Yeah, yeah. And 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 Al went along with it. It wasn't very happy in the community uh, mm -hmm. with it. We were happy to have Juneteenth, but we didn't like that compromise. And uh, because of the Iran hostage crisis going mm -hmm. on, the nickname for Al was was Ayatollah Al. Um, he, he, he got it through, but he got it through with, with some uh, pretty nefarious uh, deals there. Yeah. But, but all of that starts to really sort of impact uh, it in my mind as, as this, ought, this, it's beyond just the state of Texas. This really ought to be national because I, what I realized is none of the other states really celebrated the end of slavery. Mm -hmm. Louisiana, California, New York, Massachusetts, no, nowhere else. So it was like, well, what's wrong with the rest of you guys? You know, you don't think it's a, it was a great thing in our history to, for, for the end of slavery? And so when, when, when my family and I, we moved from Texas, we went to Alabama, um, 
at the University of Alabama. We brought it to the Black Belt. We brought it to the Black community in Alabama, and people start celebrating it. Uh, museums we worked with, other schools we worked with, and deep in the, in the Black Belt uh, communities. People started clicking to it. People started mm -hmm. celebrating and making it part of their calendar. When we got to Oklahoma, things were going on with it there. And so really, it starts to move nationally just within the Black community. It's been mm -hmm. moving in the 80s, in the 90s. And here we go into uh, uh, the turn of the millennium. Now, people say, well, Barack didn't do anything about it eight years in office. Actually, every year he was in office, I think except for one when he was on some big trip to Europe, he always made a proclamation about Juneteenth, very special proclamation about it. He didn't um, you know, try to support it becoming a holiday or, or anything like that, but, uh, but, but he, he acknowledged its yeah. importance as a day. And so as we got closer, when, when Ed Markey introduced it in the Senate and Sheila Jackson Leas, uh, Congresswoman in Houston, Texas, introduced it in the House, you know, we were following it, we were tracking it and started picking up different sponsors. And, uh, and then of course you get all the naysayers, oh, we ought to celebrate January 1. Um, oh, we ought to celebrate September when the, when the preliminary proclamation. Oh, we ought to celebrate when the uh, uh, 13th Amendment was, was finally ratified. Oh, you know, all these other dates. And, and so I'm just like, no, we already have, we already have Juneteenth. Yeah, yeah. Let's, let's lock in on that. And, um, and so, you know, it started gaining and, and uh, um, we, uh, the Biden administration had reached out to, to an organization. I'm a lifetime member of the Association for the Study of Afro-American Life and History. The, uh, the current president, he wasn't president then, but he had gotten the call in Dallas, Marvin Delaney. Marvin called me up, said, Shabazz, you know, this is kind of moving. So I, you know, we, we had a heads up. And so I, I emailed Ed, Ed Blagowski even then just saying, you know, hey, Ed, we're, we're probably, uh, this is going to be happening. And, uh, and true enough, um, you know, having everything to do with this moment of racial reckoning in the uh, background of um, uh, the murder of George Floyd, who was a Texan, uh, Breonna Taylor and all the other deaths uh, um, that, that should never have happened, you know, mm -hmm. that, that, that the time the time was right for this. And uh, to have this kind of reckoning, to have this, this important historical date to be uniform across the country. And I'm happy it turned out to be that the date was Juneteenth. <laughs> yeah, no, no, I, I absolutely agree. Um, and I look forward to the ways that we'll celebrate Juneteenth on our campus moving forward. Um, so I noticed that there was some pushback from folks um, you know, that felt that making Juneteenth the federal holiday was an empty gesture. Maybe it's just performative. We want more than that. Again, pushback from various different sides of, of the argument and um, even some backlash, right? Um, and I think generally speaking, that pushback is very similar to the backlash that we've seen in recent times on teaching race or racism, but more so in teaching racism um, and the history of slavery in schools and school systems. How does the movement to recognize Juneteenth as a federal holiday fit in with that larger movement for racial justice in America right now? Well, that's a, it's a deep question, an important mm -hmm. question. Let me just take it like this. First of all, we have to understand slavery is, the institution of slavery is, as old, is almost as old as recorded human history. 
Yeah. But the time we start having recorded human history, we find that there, there are societies are characterized by some people owning other people. Mm -hmm. taking their labor, not paying them, making uh, uh, different configurations of it. The, uh, what emerged in the United States, this type of slavery we call shadow, chattel slavery. Someone heard me one day and they thought I was saying shadow, shadow, <laughs> no, but chattel slavery, like cattle. Yeah. Um, that form of slavery was a very unique type uh, that grew up in the Americas and the plantation economies of the America. But, but slavery as a, as a form of labor control and as a form of social organization goes, goes back millennia. Mm -hmm. and, um, and so it, 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 to really to study it, to critique it, to, um, uh, uh, to, to really in, engage it in our, in our lives is not about uh, guilt tripping or, or, or saying something negative about the particular characteristics of it in the United States, mm -hmm. where it was this, this group of people who came to identify themselves as white by the color of their skin, even whereas they came out of all different sorts of places of Europe, but they homogenized themselves into this kind of white identity, white Christian identity, good. That's just the particular form of this institution of slavery mm -hmm. that, that, that we're critiquing, okay? But it has nothing to do with, with then a, uh, uh, that it's about attacking Christianity or it's about attacking white, white Christians. It's about critiquing the, the phenomena that grew up in this country and, um, and, and that we had, it took so hard a battle, a fight to begin yeah to extricate ourselves from, to extricate society from. And we're still in a process of extricating. This is where it connects for me with my research and my writings and my work on reparations, because one of the dynamics of it is, is that 1865, June 19th, what should have happened the next day is the move toward reparations, mm -hmm. is, to remove, is the move to repair the harm of those uh, uh, decades and, 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 and uh, centuries of the institution of slavery, the impact it had on what at that time was about four million, four and a half million um, uh, um, people of African descent in this country. But because of the politics of the time, because of the uh, uh, um, myriad reasons, the process of reconstruction never got to the point where successfully there was enough support politically and militarily to implement a program of reparations. Yeah. Okay. It, the, the start of it occurs with the Freedmen's Bureau. Mm -hmm. We were getting there. Okay. We were sort of starting the part of the mission of the Freedmen's Bureau was taking confiscated lands of those who had been in rebellion against the US government and then redistributing those confiscated lands to those who had been enslaved. It was starting education, building schools and educating the freed people, uh, protecting them in the courts, making sure that there was fair uh, 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 criminal justice systems, jurisprudence. Um, and then, and, and that was the start of it. But then the, uh, as after Lincoln's assassinated, the, his vice president that comes in, that was a 
pro-Southern slaveholder sympathizer in Andrew Johnson, which I was just reading recently. There was a poll of historians of the worst presidents, of ranking the presidents. Andrew Johnson is at the bottom of those 45. 40, wow. 20, uh, yeah, all of those, yeah. At the bottom. He was the worst. He was impeached. He's terrible. And, and, and this is the one that, um, that stops the process of reparative justice that vetoes, of course, they overruled this veto, but then it had a shelf life that it only lasted like a year or so before they lost support for the Freedmen's Bureau. So the start we were making in the direction of repair gets uh, abbreviated, gets wiped out. And then going further toward 1876 with the disputed election of Rutherford Hayes and Samuel Tilden, the compromise being take the troops out, well, that's fully the end of it. No, no reparations gonna happen at all after 1876. So yeah. between 1866, 1876, there were struggles for it. There, was, there were some uh, efforts in the form of Freedmen's Bureau, but it ultimately gets truncated and there is no repair. So we, we still haven't addressed the, and, and closed out this chapter. But again, this has nothing to do with trying to uh, objectify white people, white Americans as, as the root of all evil, as inherently evil and bad and, 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 uh, and, and look at them and they ought to feel guilty and tragically. This, that's, that's a myth. That's mm -hmm. something that the critics of critical race theory have dreamed up. Nobody teaches that, nobody argues that, no curriculum is predicated uh, uh, on those kinds of assumptions. So it's a, it's a canard, it's a red herring. Yeah. But, but this is where we are still struggling over the, uh, uh, the, 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 the institutionalized effects of the racism that was created to rationalize this system of human of perpetual human bondage, this the, the racism was a set of ideas uh, and assumptions about uh, human beings that came into existence, was popularized, was promoted, and ultimately uh, um, people people believed and internalized for centuries because it because it was just such an inherent contradiction to take a child born from their mother and from that very right out of the womb saying, you will be a slave. You will be the property of another person for the rest of your life. There's nothing you can do about it. Somebody that, that is, you know, they, 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 they owe the world nothing. It should yeah. be their human right to be free as an individual. They've done nothing wrong. It's just a product of their birth, who they were born to. And that yet they get categorized for life. As, as, as this enslaved property. So that's, that, that's so inhuman to imagine that you then have to have ideas to rationalize that, mm -hmm. oh, that child though, they, by their very skin, they bear the mark of Canaan. That, that's the curse of, of, of the child of Noah for laughing at the father. And, and, and you know, all these kinds of rationales to say that, 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 that this innocent child should be enslaved for the rest of their life. Nothing can ever be done about it because that's just in, in inherently what they deserve.
Yeah. So wrong. So you irrational. Create, yeah. Irrational. So you got to create these ideas that that they're that they were under the mark of Canaan or they're genetically inferior. They're on the bottom of the great chain of being, not too far from the monkeys and the and the apes. And so it's really an act of benevolence to to hold them as slaves, to to begin to civilize and Christianize them, and uh, and and it will take hundreds of years before, if not millennia, before they'll ever develop the character to be. Uh, 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 amongst the rest of us in the human family. But, uh, you know, all of that garbage yeah. comes about and then gets institutionalized, gets mm -hmm. taught, gets passed on, gets believed in, even internalized by many Black people themselves. Mm -hmm. Read the poetry of Phyllis Wheatley. Read the poetry of Jupiter Hammond and all these others that, oh, they saved us from the jungles of Africa where we were, you know, caught up in sin and, the, and, and caught up with the devil. They were, you know, black people even believing and parroting this, 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 this rationale, this nonsense. Yeah. So here we are in 2021 and we still can't extricate ourselves from, we still have people sending email around trying to make people coming back to school feel, feel like, you know, uh, uh, they, they, this is all still true in 2021 we've still got people parroting this kind of stuff so it's a it just shows the the um uh, uh us that we have to redouble our efforts and so you asked about how to celebrate how we celebrate juneteenth the lessons we still have yet to learn is how to begin to develop a an anti-racist society it's mm -hmm. not sufficient for us to say we're going to to have uh to not be right to be a non-racist society yeah. we've got to actually be actively anti-racist and you all know this you all you know made uh, ibram kendi's book uh, a reading selection for the campus and and we brought ibram kendi in who makes the argument very strongly uh very clearly uh there have been many others and and uh but it's but it's the point b that we have to be actively opposed to this kind of uh, this assumptive logic of a racist society that has been so so heavily imbued. So yes, there's a lot of pushback. They'll continue to be pushback because uh, you know uh, uh, racism sells. Racism mm -hmm. makes a lot of money. I mean, racism keeps uh, certain kinds of coalitions together that that are politically powerful. Uh, mm -hmm. um, it, it it benefits certain groups psychologically to have uh, you know builds their self esteem to think that way. So there's there's a lot of impetus for racism to stay alive. But again, yeah. for those of us who don't want that kind of world, we've got to have just as much impetus behind us in fighting against racism. I absolutely agree. And thank you. I, I love listening to historians. Um, I have a few friends who are historians. And, you know, once once you all get going on a topic, I can just sort of, um, you know, sit there for days listening and soaking it in and the stories and the dates and the moments and the way that you all connect all of that together beautifully. So thank you for that. Um, and I, you know, I, I absolutely agree. The idea of um, I'm not going to be racist is is an ideal of the past. Um, to your point, you have to actively and intentionally practice anti-racism um, in order to get us to a place where, you know, anywhere close to this ideal of inclusion, right? We talk about equity and inclusion and to get anywhere close to that, you have to first be working on being anti-racist. Um, so, so thank you for sharing that. So 
I think this segues into the next question that I want to ask you is about some of the work that you're doing in the Afro-AM department here at UMass. Um, you've written about African-American experience in higher education extensively. Can you talk a bit about the struggle for representation in higher education and why it's important for universities to support um, Black studies, but also to, to glean knowledge and wisdom from departments like yours in order to um, continue to establish programs and initiatives that support the Black community? Thank you. Um, as I was thinking about these issues, I go back to reading the work of a, of a brilliant, brilliant um, legal mind um, named Derek Bell, mm -hmm. and particularly his book, Faces at the Bottom of the Well. Mm -hmm. And and one of the one of, in one of the chapters he and he has these different points about the permanence of racism and one of them has to do with who has the authority to teach to speak to educate about racism and the you know what's what's an interesting irony is you could very easily have uh, the academy feel like they can do it all. And they don't need black people to, to, to do it, that they that they can do it better than us. They can teach anti-racism better than us. They can teach black history and, and American history in its fullness better than us. And uh, for those of us who've come up in the black studies movement uh, from the from this from the 70s, in my case, from the 60s, from some of my my uh, my big brothers like John Bracey and uh, Ernie Allen and Esther Terry and uh, Mike Thelwell. You know, the, we realize that that's, you know, that the, the academy, higher ed, uh, can be pretty arrogant, but uh, truth be told, they do need us present. There is a way in which um, we bring a certain added value. We who have the lived experience of being Black in the world and all the implications of that. There's a certain value to that that cannot be replicated, no matter how well uh, uh, the, the, the white person or the Asian person or the non-black person studies, reads us. You can read it, you can read it. It's still different to live it. And so there is a purpose then when you say the question of our representation, mm -hmm. you have to be clear what that is. It isn't just to have black faces in high places, okay? When W.E.B. Du Bois became the first PhD out of Harvard with a PhD in history, he could not get a job anywhere in the country at any predominantly white, historically white institution of higher mm -hmm. education. Nowhere. He got a job at University of Pennsylvania, but it was as a researcher and he had his own funding to support his research. So they gave him a little, a little box in an office and you know, for his mail and, and they let him be on the campus to, to do his research. And uh, that became the study called the Philadelphia Negro. But mm -hmm. to teach, to actually have a teaching appointment? Oh, no, 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 no. And so when the research project was over and the funding was over, bye-bye. Uh, 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 Dr. Du Bois, and he had to, and, and, and he had, he ends up in the what we call the historically black college teaching, particularly going down for many years in Atlanta at Atlanta University, what's now called Clark Atlanta University. He spends many years before he leaves academia to to uh, 
uh, joined the NAACP, National Association for the Advancement of Colored People in New York to edit their cultural magazine called The Crisis. But, um, his, his, but this shows you the fight for the inclusion. You don't mm -hmm. start getting black professors at predominantly or historically white colleges and universities until around about the 40s and 50s, you here and there, here and there. Yeah. Um, a sociologist at, in Peoria, Illinois, at Bradley University, or, or uh, here at the University of Massachusetts. U UMass was one of the early ones to hire a Black person to the faculty. It was Edwin Driver, mm -hmm. again in sociology, hired to the sociology department in the late 40s. You can count them on, a, on, on, on two hands. Black professors at predominantly yeah. historically white colleges and universities. And it all starts after World War II, basically. And, and, and you can count them on one hand and then two going into the 50s. John Hope Franklin uh, is at uh, uh, Brooklyn College and then later at the University of Chicago. Uh, here and there, here and there, a few. So the, the, the idea, the, the arrogance of, the, uh, uh, of academia is either one, this knowledge isn't important, or two, when, when exigencies force that knowledge about Black life, Black lives as important, then it's like, eh, actually, we can do it better than you. We don't really need you. And the thing that changed that calculus was the, was the Black Studies movement, an offshoot mm -hmm. of the Civil Rights Movement in the 1960s, that in, and, and particularly in 1968, out in, out in uh, um, San Francisco State University, as it, that, that explodes this, this whole logic. UMass is swept up in it. They create a Black Studies program in, uh, in 68 and out of the English department, 69. By 1970, the students were like, no, 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 no. We don't want just a program. It's got to be a department. And in April of 1970, the Board of Trustees of UMass approved the W.E.B. Du Bois Department of Afro-American Studies tenure-granting, de uh, degree-conferring, standalone autonomous department, one of the few in the country by that time in, in, in 1970. And though of those that were created, the general idea, again, amongst the, the, the pipe-smoking, tweed jacket-wearing <laughs> professor, yeah. is that it would all crash and mm. you could wipe it away in a couple of years. It's all gonna, and the, the students are gonna demobilize. They're not gonna be so politically conscious in a few years. They'll forget all about this and we can wipe this stuff out. Never happened at UMass. The department here stayed strong at one time with a faculty of 20. And I mean, stellar faculty, recruiting jazz artists like Archie Shep, um, uh, 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 Max Roach, Okay, their appointments was in Afro-American studies first, not, not the music department. Randolph Bromery, the great chancellor at that time, he yeah. recruits them, but they, they opt to be in Afro-American studies mm. until things got a little bit, little bit more accepting and better in the music. And then they were jointly in music and Afro-Am. Uh, artists, visual artists like Nelson Stevens. We've had the writers here. We've had Chinua Chebi on the faculty, um, James Baldwin on the faculty, the widow and, and, and great scholar and writer in her own right, Shirley Graham Du Bois is in the department. 
um, David Graham Du Bois, her son. Um, we, we, you know, this this illustrious faculty, Janetta yeah. Janetta Cole, uh, uh, who, who goes on to be president of Spelman College and and do, does all this incredible stuff, was anthropology, but also part of setting up Afro American studies, building Afro, building out Afro American studies. Esther mm -hmm. Terry gets her PhD in the English department, and they say, look, let's not let her leave. And they keep her and, and she comes into Afro M. And she was our longest chair. She was almost 20 years as chair. She's the wow. chair that I, I succeeded. I came in after. So, yeah. so the, the importance of this representation, let us be clear, is, is, is that we not only bring the, 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 the same scholarly capacity, but we bring a certain lived experience and engagement with the community mm -hmm. that is uniquely a product of, 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 of and, and the kind of diversity that that we actually have benefited from that has that has had great uh, uh, effects throughout higher ed uh, yeah. as, as and, and on our campuses. So yeah. it's um, it's been a hard uh, a lesson to understand, but especially as a lot of these departments are 50 years now, 50 years old. Um, I'm president of the National Council for Black Studies, so. I get invited to a lot of these 50th anniversary celebrations. I was just out at the University of Iowa. Yeah. I mean, very, very white uh, communities. But, uh, but again, hearing the stories, white, black, um, the, uh, you know, about the impact and the importance and the, and the kinds of changes that uh, the African-American Studies Department over its 50-year history and in Iowa City has had for Iowans. It's just it's just been a, a tremendous privilege for me to, yeah. uh, to go all these places and to and to and to understand the dynamics of inclusion, mm -hmm. how it really works. That's that's so. Um, thank you for sharing that. Um, it's and I feel like at some point we just need a podcast just on the history of the department, right? I mean, yes, we're going to talk about Juneteenth. Yes, we're going to talk about these other things, but we'll absolutely circle back to have a podcast where we're just talking about the history and maybe it's a panel of other folks included, but I love, Absolutely. again, you, you, are, you are talking me into a zone over here. I have to remember that I'm the one that's supposed to be hosting you. Um, and I think something, a few things that you mentioned, um, we will not be able to get into now because I wanna be very um, conscious of the fact that we want people to listen to this and we can't go on forever, although you and I could. But I think it's interesting to think about the incorporation of Afro-Am departments, um, African-American studies programs, and how in some ways um, it, it's allowed the authentic inclusion of Black people in academia. So I think about, and I think about assimilation, right? There's typically, especially in higher ed, there's, um, constantly a pressure to assimilate into norms and structures and ways of being that higher ed has been for for decades and centuries and I think um then again I won't go into this now because this is another conversation but I think it's interesting to see when I think about inclusion I think about authentic inclusion allowing folks um, institutions organizations to be exactly who they are and feel included um, and not have to assimilate the way that they do their work and the way that they are as an organization or an institution, or in this case, a department. Um, so I think it's interesting to come back to that conversation at another time um, to contrast um, the ways that organizations and departments 
might feel forced to assimilate into the norms of higher ed and the ways that AFRAM departments have been resilient and being authentic to um, the African-American experience. So thank you for sharing that. Be glad to join you on that. Like you say, and there, there's some other voices here in the Valley and around that we can definitely tap into for that. Fantastic. So we touched on this a little bit earlier. Um, currently there's backlash against educational programs that address racism and black history, especially in K through 12 curriculum. I mean, we've seen it on the news, whether it's CNN, Fox News, we, we see it all over, right? We see it on social media, with some states going as far as to um, ban ethnic studies outright. So when students arrive at UMass, we have to expect that their familiarity with black history is absolutely gonna vary widely in most cases. Um, and that some students may not have received as much education on these subjects um, at all before they matriculated here. So how can an institute of higher learning like UMass um, address this gap to ensure that we are producing students, scholars, folks that are gonna go out in the industry who have a greater understanding of black history in particular, um, considering the gaps that we know exist in K through 12 and are able to understand the context of racism in America. Thank you. One of our most uh, popular classes is the history of the civil rights movement. I'm currently teaching it. Uh, I have 180 students. We, we meet in person in Guessman Laboratory, um, although I do allow some uh, that need to, to zoom in. Uh, so we set it up both ways. And um, we, have, uh, we have a distance version of it that's being taught at the same time. It's, mm -hmm. it's uh, fully subscribed. Uh, it, it, it offers gen ed. So a lot of people are taking it because it satisfies the uh, gen ed domestic diversity requirement. But uh, I'd like to think along the way that um, they really enjoy it and benefit uh, from, from, from the learning as well. Uh, most of the classes is is uh, is not African American. African Americans are very are 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 a fraction of the total uh, 180 students in the class, and as you say, they come in uh, um, with widely divergent backgrounds. I have international students in the class. I have um, students of Asian descent, European descent. So, um, but the what they're getting in the class is an insight not just on African-Americans or the problems of African-Americans, but they're getting insight on the world, mm -hmm. on, um, on, on institutions, on structures. When we're looking at the Montgomery bus boycott and the response of the, um, uh, the, the, the city government and the response of the corporation that was providing the bus service in Montgomery, we're, we're not just talking about events of 1955-1956. We're, yeah. we're, we're, we're equipping the students and engaging the students with ideas and issues that are relevant to right now today in 2021. When we look at the, uh, the Johnson, uh, the Eisenhower administration, the, the uh, Kennedy administration, the Johnson administration, and how they are responding to the, the, uh, uh, the upsurge of the black community with white allies uh, uh, dying with them, mm -hmm. dying with them in Mississippi, in the case of Goodman, Cheney, and Schwerner. Um, you know, their, their eyes are opened, not merely to things taking place in six, 1964, but right now. Mm -hmm. I have the privilege to, to bring in guests 
like we had one of the original freedom riders who lives in the valley, Gene, Gene Denton Thompson, who, was, who goes from uh, New Orleans to join the folks in Mississippi as uh, the, the freedom ride from Washington DC coming down gets, gets stopped in, in Mississippi and they go up there to try to keep, keep the effort going. And, uh, and she's arrested and she goes to, the, to, to jail uh, and is beaten. So, you know, we, I, uh, tomorrow I have uh, Tom Gardner uh, coming who uh, was a uh, part of organizing the uh, uh, Southern Students Organizing Committee at the mm -hmm. University of Virginia in 1964. He lives here in the Valley. He teaches at Westfield State now, but he was part of organizing white students to support the civil rights movement and to educate in the white community, not going down South, not going uh, um, into the black communities, but organizing white people to organize in the white community for change. Yeah. And so Tom is gonna come and talk about his, uh, his work and his experience at the University of Virginia in the 60s and what, what, why he did what he did and how he did. So they're, so they're learning and engaging with the here and now but through the past, mm. kind of what we call the Sankofa principle, the Sankofa uh, that's seen as a bird looking backward, picking a seed is uh, from the Adinkra of the Akan in Ghana, modern day Ghana, that is a proverb that says it is not taboo to go back and fetch it. And it has to do with the idea of looking to the past to know where we must go to see mm how we must move forward. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and so it's that Sankofa principle that we, we take into our studies that I think really um, is, is, is the best that history can ever offer. Because as you say, if it's just the rote memorization of dates and, and names and events, then you're not getting much out of it at all, yeah. really. Yeah. Uh, it is really about how the present can be discovered and that the challenges of our present can be discovered uh, by looking at the past. The yes. past is prelude to the present. So that's how we try to approach it. And, and I like to think that in our classes, our literature classes, our history classes, our political science classes out of the Afro-M studies department that at our best, this is how we really engage the students in ways that I think are really important. You know, one of our alums were just celebrated uh, this past week for homecoming, Rachel Rollins. Did you get mm -hmm. to meet her? I probably got to meet her. So Rachel comes out in 94 from Afro-M. She came over to visit us in New Africa House. And it was interesting to sit down and here is this person who is right now the district attorney of Suffolk County incorporating uh, Boston, greater Boston, and has been nominated to be the uh, one of the 11 uh, US attorneys, um, uh, not 11, but one of the um, attorneys for, for the state of Massachusetts, the yeah. attorney for the state of Massachusetts. And uh, look at the reaction once again, people are trying to stop her nomination. The minority party, the Republicans are trying to stop her nomination because they, they, they feel that the kind of, of, of outlook that she brings, one that, is, that, is, that, that understands the, the dynamics of institutional racism and how uh, even law enforcement has, has, there are lessons to be learned and mm -hmm. she's learned them and she's trying to apply them in the way that her office uh, right now at the district attorney level in Suffolk County, but prepare to take it to the statewide level, how 
in, in terms of the finite resources of her office can be applied to really affect crime meaningfully as opposed to this kind of broken windows uh, idea, this, this approach to that, that has led to the new Jim Crow, as Michelle Alexander calls it, this mass incarceration. And, and so for that way of being more astute about law enforcement, about uh, uh, her role as a prosecutor, they want to stop that yeah. because they don't want those kinds, that, that to become a trend amongst prosecutors. Why? Because I, as I said, racism is profitable. Racism is politically potent. This is how we can get more Trumps in America in, into office if we can keep these racist ideas having, having currency as opposed mm -hmm. to moving in a more critical and in a more intelligent direction as Rachel Rollins has been pursuing and been, and been honored by her work. People are yeah. honoring her work over the years in Suffolk County. That's why the Biden administration has named her because her work is, is resonating. But to try to stop that and check that, that's where we can learn from if we, you know, we can learn from, from our studies how, mm -hmm. how, how, why these things occur. It isn't just that, that uh, Mitch McConnell is just a mean guy. He's trying to stop a certain uh, uh, progress uh, from happening, yeah. but we'll but we'll win. We're gonna win. Yeah, for sure. Professor, thank you so much. This has been a fantastic conversation. And I gotta I gotta call you out. Is that Sean John that you got on? Is that a Sean John sweatsuit? Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> I, I get these presents all the time. Oh, so, I love it. I love it. I love it. Um, so, so yes, uh, it's been a fantastic conversation. I, I appreciate you taking the time um, to educate our campus community through this podcast and through our conversations today. Is there anything else that you would like to share? Any last comments? We're good though. Just look forward to, to um, uh, like you say, some of that follow-up conversation on, the, mm -hmm. on some of our own history here at uh, uh, on the campus um, and, and the Du Bois department. And, uh, and again, just respecting your work, respecting this, this, uh, this podcast, because, you know, dignity and, um, and respect are great, but if they're not put into action, um, you don't you don't get the full effect of it. Absolutely. So glad to see what you're doing. Well, well, the the feeling and admiration is absolutely mutual. Um, so we do something that I well, really quickly we like to do this with all of our guests. We have three rapid fire questions that we'll ask you, and I switched one of them. So the first one is, what is your favorite pie or cake? Ooh, so I'm gonna name a pie. Uh, comes out of Louisiana, my, my Louisiana roots. It's called kushaw, kushaw pie. It's a type of squash. It's really good. I've never heard of that. And I, I know my pies and I've never heard of that. I have to try, I'll have to try it. I'll have to try oh, one. You said it, it's a squash. Yes, it's from the okay. family. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, if you like pies, I, I think I make the best sweet potato pie in the world. So Let's have it. Let's um, go. right after my mom's sweet potato pie. So Let's um, go. <laughs> texting or talking on the phone. Wow, neither one. I, uh, but but uh, but texting I find is easier. Same. Text me. Uh, favorite city in the U.S. besides obviously Amherst. <laughs> you know, I'm I'm gonna just throw this out there. I could revise it anytime now, but uh, but Chicago was mm. one of the big cities. I I really uh, got a good good vibe when I when I was there one summer. I like Chicago, but being raised in Atlanta, I'm a ATL ATL girl. Um, last show you watched, last TV show that you've watched. 
So I'm, uh, I'm going to call this out and uh, just for the fun of it, Squid Game. <laughs> well, I think, I mean, Squid Game, if you're watching Squid Game, you're right on par with, you know, our students and what's happening. You, you definitely have your finger on the pulse of the students. <laughs> Professor Shabazz, thank you so much for your time. This has been an absolute pleasure. I appreciate you. Thank you, Neff. Thank you so much for joining us today. Um, and also thank you for your dedication to making black history and celebrations visible and part of our everyday lives. And obviously thank you for the tremendous amount of work that you've done here on our campus in our state um, and beyond. So, and thanks to our listeners for tuning in today to Dignity and Respect in Action. If you've enjoyed the, today's podcast, make sure to hit subscribe. I'm your host, Dr. Neff Walker. We will see you next time. <laughs>